To shingles, age isn't just a number. Do you have patients 50 or older? They're at higher risk of getting shingles. Don't wait. Talk about Shingrix with your patients over 50 today. Shingrix is indicated for the prevention of herpes zoster, HZ, or shingles in adults 50 years of age or older. Consult a product monograph at gsk.ca slash shingrix slash pm for contraindications, warnings, and precautions, adverse reactions, interactions, dosing, and administration information. To request a product monograph or to report an adverse event, please call 1-800-387-7374. Learn more at thinkshingrix.ca. This episode is brought to you by Dr. Bill. Dr. Bill makes medical billing easy, fast, and pain-free. Spend your time on patient care. Let us handle the billing for you. Dr. Bill is now available for free. Visit drbill.ca. It's dr-bill.ca and get started today. As COVID-19 took hold in Canada, long-term care homes became the epicenter of our pandemic. More than 80% of COVID-19 deaths in Canada have been among residents of these homes. Why is that? It's no secret that the system is broken and has been broken for a long time. And perhaps closer examination of potential reasons why could help prevent future outbreaks and deaths. I'm Dr. Kirsten Patrick, Executive Editor for CMAJ. And today I'm talking to Drs. Nathan Stoll and Andrew Costa. They've co-authored a research article looking at the risk of outbreaks and deaths in long-term care homes by for-profit or not-for-profit status. They've joined me to discuss their research. Welcome, Nathan and Andrew. Good to be here. Thanks for having us. Thanks for joining me today. So let's begin, Nathan and Andrew, by having you tell our listeners who you are and what you do. I'm Andrew Costa. I'm an associate professor and hold a research chair in clinical epidemiology and aging at McMaster University, and that's in Hamilton, Ontario. I also serve in the capacity of a research director within McMaster in the St. Joseph's Health System, and I conduct observational and experimental research on models of care in a number of sectors, including long-term care. I'm Nathan Stahl. I am a geriatrician at Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto, and I'm also a research fellow at Women's College Research Institute uh, and the University of Toronto, uh, both obviously situated in Toronto. And finally, uh, I should note that I am an associate editor for the Canadian Medical Association Journal. Thanks to both of you. So it is always important for us to mention that Nathan is an associate editor with CMAJ and he has not been involved at all with the processing or review of this paper. So tell me in summary, Nathan, what you looked at in this research study. Yeah, so we conducted a retrospective cohort study of all the long-term care homes in the province of Ontario uh, covering the period of the largest uh, outbreaks and number of deaths in the province. And that was from March 29th, 2020, the first recorded outbreak uh, in the province of Ontario and, and covering up to May 20th, 2020. And what we were looking for was the association uh, between for-profit status of long-term care homes and the risk of a COVID-19 outbreak the risk of the size of the COVID-19 outbreak, so the number of cases uh, of residents in the home infected with COVID-19, and then the number of COVID-19 resident deaths within a home. And so we looked at those three associations, again, by for-profit status. Andrew, tell me why did you decide to hone in on this comparison between profit versus not-for-profit institutions? For us, as the pandemic emerged, we were uh, very concerned about the vulnerable state of long-term care. And um, those of us who work in long-term care or do research long-term care 
Uh, we absolutely expected a major impact. Um, we're very concerned about how it would unfold. As the pandemic unfolded, the for-profit, not-for-profit debate emerged as a major focus in the media. And um, we were a little bit frustrated by the crude analysis that was being conducted to, I guess, illuminate that issue and that it was occurring a little bit to the expense of other issues that um, we and others understand exist in the sector. Basically, that simple solutions were being proposed for rather complex issues. So we decided that we would investigate the for-profit status issue, not only to answer the question, you know, does it matter, but also examine it in light of a fuller picture. So we were answering the for-profit question as a primary exposure of interest, because it was um, the major issue in the public interest at the time, but also putting it in context with other factors that we could count for. The other thing I would add, Andrew, is that, um, as you know, there's several observational studies, um, some done in Canada and some uh, done across the world, that tend to suggest that for-profit long-term care homes deliver inferior care across a variety of outcomes. And uh, one of the major outcomes that that's associated with is lower levels and, and quality of staffing. Uh, there is some evidence uh, about higher rates of emergency department visits uh, and acute care hospital admissions and mortality. And so there was a, uh, in addition to sort of the public discourse that was going on and continues to go on, I would argue, around for-profit status, uh, there is, you know, uh, several decades of, of, of research, um, some of it in Canada, that has focused on for-profit status and, and the quality of care and outcomes uh, for long-term care homes. Now, in your paper, you look at three different categories of long-term care facility, municipal homes, not-for-profit homes, and for-profit facilities. So just so that we're all on the same page, can you explain the difference? Yeah, and uh, it's, it's probably first important for those listening to make sure they understand sort of what's common. So all long-term care homes in Ontario, they're regulated by uh, the Ministry of Long-Term Care um, in the same way and are publicly funded. And so the ministry pays directly to facilities the costs or stipend costs that's standardized and regulated for nursing and personal care, as well as some recreation programming. And so that comes in at around $200 per resident per day or, or $6,000 a month. And much of the care is for the, the staffing, and it basically provides a staffing ratio that translates to about 2.7 hours of direct care per day. Uh, so that's standard across the board. Uh, what's also standard is that regardless of the model, uh, residents pay a regulated and standardized copayment that basically funds their uh, room and board, you might say. And this amounts to about $60 to $80 per day, uh, per resident per day, depending on the type of accommodation that they pursue, being private versus standard. So though publicly funded and regulated across the board, uh, homes operate either as a public and municipal, not-for-profit, which could include charitable, religious, community agency, or on a for-profit basis. The major differences are around, number one, accountability. So beyond being accountable to the Ministry of Health, not-for-profit homes, they're accountable to a not-for-profit board, charity, an agency, a cultural religious group. Municipal homes to the municipal council of the municipality who's operating it and for-profit either to the corporate board, in the case of chains, or an owner-operator. There are some differences uh, in funding beyond what the Ministry of Health provides in a co-payment. Oftentimes, the governing bodies of not-for-profit homes and municipalities augment funding to enhance services, either through 
essentially uh, fundraising or through municipal budgets. And it varies uh, to the extent to which that occurs, and it's not really well understood. Staffing is also a difference. Municipal facilities, their staff are municipal staff, which generally means uh, higher salaries, benefits, more full-time, stable work. And then between them, there are important nuances that um, are often missed. So although some not-for-profit homes, they are not-for-profit, some of them, and it's unknown exactly how many and to what extent they operate with the support of for-profit subcontractors, either in whole or in part. And for-profit facilities, they operate differently as well. Some are publicly traded companies, whereas others are uh, small single owner operators. You looked at odds of a COVID-19 outbreak in relationship to category of home and the extent of the outbreak and deaths from COVID-19 if there was an outbreak. So can you first tell us about outbreaks and what you found? Yeah, so in our analysis, what we found was that the odds of a COVID-19 long-term care home outbreak uh, was not associated with the for-profit status of the home, but rather was associated with the incidence of COVID-19 in the region, the public health unit region surrounding a long-term care home. Um, It was also associated with the number of residents that were in a home, and it was associated with older design standards. Uh, So older uh, standards that the long-term care home uh, are held to in terms of the physical infrastructure of the building. And, uh, you know, to us, that that suggests that, um, you know, when we talk about an outbreak in a long-term care home, during the during the pandemic most of these homes became relatively closed environments uh, meaning that there was a a ban a a blanket ban on visitors many of these homes people were only leaving the homes to go to acute care hospitals new admissions were not happening and so the what was happening was the vector and this has been shown in in other studies um, was the staff that were coming from the community and unknowingly bringing virus into the home. And, th- and that's reflected in the fact that the incidence of COVID-19 um, in, the, in the region surrounding the nursing home was more responsible uh, for seeding the outbreaks rather than the for-profit status of the home itself. So as well as the risk of an outbreak in a care home, can you tell us about the size of an outbreak in relation to uh, for-profit status? Yeah, so here's where we found a, a significant association between for-profit status and the extent, size of an outbreak or the number of residents uh, that got infected with COVID-19 in a home that had an outbreak. And when we looked at the data, uh, we found that for-profit status was associated with a nearly two-fold increase in the size of COVID-19 nursing home outbreaks. And um, when we actually did an explanatory model to look at what might be the factors that could that could explain that, what we found was that older design standards, uh, that was a significant factor and also chain ownership of the long-term care home was um, as well. And what about deaths? Yes, so similarly, um, for-profit status was associated with a 1.7 8-fold increase in the number of COVID resident deaths in in for-profit homes as compared to uh, not-for-profit homes. And uh, again, in our, fully adjusted explanatory model, uh, the number of deaths, again, was uh, seemed to be mediated by homes with older design standards uh, and chain ownership of the homes. 
What's uh, important to note for both the association between for-profit status and its association with the size of nursing home outbreaks and the number of deaths uh, within nursing homes was that all these comparisons favored municipal homes even more. So it seemed that municipal homes uh, did, did the best out of the three profit categories we looked at. Nonprofit homes were, um, and nonprofit homes were in the middle, and then for-profit homes had fared the worst for these three outcomes. That's very compelling. So Nathan, you were talking about um, design standards, and um, I wondered if you could give us a little bit of background about what that is. I know that there were different design standards mandated at a certain time. Uh, what are older design standards and newer design standards for homes? Yeah, so this has really come up uh, also in the public discourse uh, recently because I think people have been very surprised to know that um, a substantial proportion of long-term care home beds in the province of Ontario actually meet design standards uh, for the year 1972. So we're looking at uh, you know nearly 50-year-old design standards. The older long-term care homes that we classify essentially conform to a standard that was introduced in common 1972 with the original Nursing Homes Act. And back then it was quite common that you would have uh, across the board institutional designs where there's a lack of common areas, four bed ward type rooms. And the way we viewed long-term care then especially was as institutions and not as home-like living spaces. That's evolved over the years, and there's been successively um, improved standards up until uh, about 2009, 2015, where there was the mandate that facilities would be built in a more home-like way. This meant that there was a complete elimination of four-bed ward-style rooms. They were larger rooms. You could have only a maximum of two individuals per bedroom. Um, they instituted a rule that provided for a maximum um, of depending on the standard conformity, uh, 32 to 42 beds or residents, excuse me, per home area, which is essentially a self-contained unit within a facility uh, that uh, has its own self-contained eating areas, kitchen, uh, recreation space, such that residents could feel like they're in a, um, a more home-like environment. And so beyond quality of life, this obviously has uh, advantages for infection control. In those facilities, they could manage their workforce such that they would be assigned to one of those unit areas so that outbreaks, if they occurred, could be contained to those unit areas much easier. Whereas in those institutional environments, not only is spread much, much easier because of the crowding within rooms, but also across the entire facility. Is this a situation of those older designs are grandfathered, so the operations can continue within those older homes because they were built before a certain time, but um, new builds have to comply with the new standards? Yeah, that's correct. And, um, and it's also complicated by the nature in which the facilities operate. To the extent that a facility is municipal, then there are advantages with capital funding from the municipal government to be able to upgrade facilities where you have, in particular, owner-operated facilities. Oftentimes, there isn't the capital budget or perhaps the willingness to upgrade their facilities. And it's a complicated issue because the government uh, stipend that's provided provides some incentive towards upgrading your facility, but not enough that um, financially, in a for-profit scenario, you would necessarily think it's worth your while. The other thing... Um which has come into the news also 
recently is that um, not only is there a commitment to building new beds from the uh, government of Ontario, but there's a commitment as well to upgrading beds. And so they've recognized that these beds with the older design standards, um, this what they're calling the, the technical term being the C and D type beds, they have also target the, targeted these for upgrading. Now the, the question of why these haven't been upgraded. So the actual term of the license that is um, given to these beds is a lot lower. And there was the expectation, and there has been expectations for homes that they would upgrade these older beds as licenses expired. But as Andrew said, this is a quite complex issue. And so license would ex would expire and they, they seem to have keep renewing these licenses without having upgraded. So they, they keep up renewing them with short with short term licenses and, and there has been no way to actually force them to upgrade these beds. Yeah, the Ministry of Health is in a tough spot to the extent that they do not renew the licenses. They reduce capacity in a sector that is already overstretched, which is viewed as undesirable for on behalf of the entire health system, including hospitals that are dealing with um, an ALC continued crisis. And so where there isn't willingness to upgrade the facility, it tends to persist rather than close or some magical financial incentive to emerge that they would upgrade. So the majority of homes with older design standards are for profit. And pessimistically, one could look at it that, um, you know, they know that there is incredible demand. Um, they have seen that there is no consequence to, for a failure to upgrade. And so this issue persists. Um, and they, their licenses keep getting renewed. And any reason that if, if homes are part of a chain, there might be an increase in um, likelihood of people dying once an outbreak starts? This was a curious finding for us, and um, we think it needs more investigation. There was uh, a good bit of variation in the association, which also leads to a little bit of confusion around our hypotheses for it, but we think it may be, and this is supported by the literature, due to uh, lower staffing levels, but more likely more part-time staff and more instability in their staffing base associated with chain ownership, which is generally associated with for-profit publicly traded companies. And if this was to be true, and obviously it requires more investigation, it would be yet another powerful example as um, staffing mix and dynamic as a very powerful mediator for quality. I think it's actually important to focus on that issue of staffing because you were not able to look very closely at staffing in this study because you looked at the facility level. So could you tell us about sort of the, the limitations around that that made it not possible for you to look at staffing? Staffing was certainly a limitation for us and um, the limitation associated with two things. Number one, we have very poor information on staffing dynamics because it's just generally not collected. Uh, and number two, if we had better information, it, it would be of little utility because at the time before the pandemic, the staffing situation would have changed radically with the pandemic where there was directives around staffs not being able to work across facilities, which meant that there was a, a huge shift in the workforce that we probably can't account for. The other thing I was, I was just going to say, add to that is that it actually also speaks to, um, you know, the data that, that we had available for analysis is from um, the Ministry of Long-Term Care. And the staffing data that, um, that they have reflects the number of full-time equivalent staff uh, per resident in the home, 
what we don't know and what this doesn't capture, because that just talks speaks about the entire number of rostered staff. It doesn't actually talk about the number of hours that a staff physically spends in the building, which is clearly a much more important indicator. And I think hopefully, as we'll talk about um, in this sort of conversation about long-term care homes and, and how we can improve things, I think there needs to be much greater attention to this issue of staffing and also to having a better understanding of those actually direct care hours that residents actually have from the staff members. And, and that that was really what you know, what we were, you know, we were obviously able to do in our analysis, but I also think it speaks to the the data that's in front of the decision makers that they also do not have. Interestingly, the commentary linked to your paper explores some of the limited evidence that there is from other jurisdictions around um, staffing and the patterns of staffing and how that's associated with um, safety on the whole and um, COVID-19 dynamics in particular. Speaking of other jurisdictions, do you suspect we'd find the same results in other provinces in Canada? It's a good question. You know, when you actually look at what happened to long-term care homes across the country, only two provinces uh, really saw the catastrophe um, in our in our homes. And that's the province of Ontario, which had uh, just over 2,700 deaths, and, and Quebec, which has over 5,600 deaths. Um, the next highest number of deaths uh, is British Columbia, which is about 189, with only 39 homes affected. So uh, I suspect, given what we found and given the known association between uh, for-profit status and overall lower qualities of care, that we'd probably see this in a province like Quebec, but we'd be underpowered to detect this in other provinces across the country because, thankfully, their homes did not have the... Uh, you know, the really devastating outbreaks that Ontario and Quebec saw. There's many reasons why other provinces um, had uh, differences in, you know, in the outcomes that we saw in long-term care homes. Let's take British Columbia, which has got a lot of attention in, in a good way for the work that Bonnie Henry and their public health agency uh, has done. Um, there were a lot of things that they did early on, which differentiated themselves from provinces like Quebec and Ontario. The province actually took over uh, as employers of their long-term care home staff to enable them to work at one home, to provide them full-time pay and benefits. Uh, They did that quite early on in the pandemic and specifically when long-term care homes were uh, impacted. Uh, The other thing that they did and that we we know they did was that they tested early and broadly um, within their long-term care homes and within their long-term care home staff. And in a province like Ontario, testing uh, early on in the pandemic was very restricted. And additionally, there was a reliance on testing residents that had what are called the typical symptoms of COVID-19, the fever and the cough. Uh, we actually know that about three three and four long-term care home residents don't actually mount a fever when they have uh, COVID-19. And they're more likely, like all other infections in older adults, to have atypical signs and symptoms, whether it's falls or delirium. So a lot of cases of COVID-19 were likely missed earlier on in the pandemic because of testing requirements that tied it to having those typical symptoms. Um, and then, frankly... Quebec and Ontario, which is most pertinent to our analysis, are provinces that actually have some of the oldest uh, design standards for our long-term care homes in the country. And so I think 
a combination of all these factors was likely to explain. And then also, as we saw in our analysis, um, the COVID-19 incidents in the communities in Ontario and Quebec, I mean, these were the two hotspots of the country for COVID-19. And so, you know, we showed that the risk of an outbreak in a long-term care home was associated with the incidence of COVID-19 in the community. So it follows that you're going to have an easier time seeding your nursing homes to have outbreaks when you have higher community incidence of COVID-19. So there are many factors at play here. Uh, but, you know, to come back to your um, earlier question about would we see this in in uh, these same results in other provinces or not? Um, you know, it's it's a little bit like comparing apples to oranges, and I think that you know we often strive for national analyses, but sometimes uh, for when when we're dealing with so many complexities within the long-term care system like this, they're not always. There were many things that were going on that make direct comparisons challenging. And the the final point I'll make to this. Um, is that um, the Canadian Institute for Health Information actually released a uh, report at the end of June exploring how Canada compares with other countries in terms of our long-term care response. And again, I've already highlighted the caveats of you know, direct comparisons, but, we, but Canada was compared to 16 other OECD countries. And uh, what they found was that Canada, we have the dubious distinction, or as I call it, actually the, our national shame of having the highest proportion of our country's COVID-19 deaths occurring in long-term care homes, which you highlighted up front. It's somewhere around 80%. And what they, they showed here is that countries who actually implemented uh, strict and early measures to try and prevent and contain long-term care homes, specifically in their long-term care sector, when they did that at the same time as measures they implemented for the broader population, so things like stay-at-home orders and closure of public places, countries like Australia and Austria, the Netherlands that did this at the same time, actually had much better outcomes in their long-term care sector. And so if you look at a province like Ontario, we, you know, we, a lot of the, the, uh, the, the state of emergency that was declared and, and closure of public spaces happened in mid-March. It took uh, until mid-April to actually enable staff to work at one home and not have them traveling between homes. It took uh, much longer to pursue universal masking and to secure the access to personal protective equipment and um, te diagnostic testing that was needed in this vulnerable population. And I think that's reflected in the fact that you know, Canada did do worse when it came to our long-term care sector. To come back to your direct findings in your study, do you think that based on what you found, we need to move away from for-profit long-term care homes in Canada? It's active uh, public policy debate. And our study essentially, curiously, has been, I guess, cited for both sides of, of the argument. And we're consistent with previous studies that have found small, um, but rather inconsistent associations between for-profit status and unfavorable outcomes. And the consistency of those associations supports the view that we should eliminate for-profit long-term care. Was the inconsistency supports the alternative view. And so the debate rages. I guess on its face, it's important to know that it's a, it could be a, a slightly intractable issue. And so it's important to recognize that about 60% of the facilities in Ontario are for-profit. And of those 26% that are not-for-profit, an unknown but meaningful number of them are actually operated by for-profit providers uh, as subcontractors. And so with municipalities 
uh, as I understand it, not exactly lining up to um, open up more long-term care homes. Our situation to move away from it is, is very challenging because it obviously would be a, a huge sea change. Uh, whether that's desirable or not, um, yeah, I think, I think can be continue to be debated on both sides. Uh, it's important to know that the relative differences exist, but there are fundamental absolute differences that need to be tackled. And so if you were to take out for profit, you're still left with some pretty big issues of a general lack of staff funding, poor wage standards, poor training, ageism, isolation of the sectors. And so I think these are uh, modifiable factors that we point to in our, our analysis. For instance, what has been immediately addressed and will continue to, we, we certainly hope, was to uh, finally uh, get on the work of improving the, the plant of these facilities. So going beyond these 1972 design standards to the kinds of facilities that we would hope that one day we could live in, in fact, that they would be better one day. We really need to fix the older facilities and upgrade them immediately and not allow any resident to enter in a facility that isn't upgraded. That's really important. It's something that we could do now. Uh, the other is a staff issue, which, uh, which we've now mentioned again. Um, I don't know anybody that thinks that uh, about two and a half hours of direct care per resident per day is at all sufficient. And uh, in a highly regulated sector like long-term care, you'll see differences in that ratio in municipal facilities compared to for-profit facilities, for example, but it is not huge. It's meaningful, but it's not huge. And so governments really need to make a substantial financial commitment to ensuring that there is adequate staff time across the board, regardless of facility, and ensure that any additional funding is translated into actual direct hours of care and not for other things. The other thing I'll add, Andrew, uh, related to our findings and, and sort of was the impetus, again, for our study, uh, was that what we found was um, of the homes that had the highest infection rates, um, 13 of the 15 homes with highest infection rates were for-profit homes uh, with older design standards. And similarly, when we looked at homes, the 10 homes uh, with the highest uh, COVID-19 death rates, seven were for-profit homes, again, with older design standards. And so, you know, in this conversation about let's get for-profit out of the sector, um, analyses like ours are essential to show that, you know, not everyone is a bad actor here um, in, in the for-profit sector. And there is a philosophical argument to be had about how people feel about having a for-profit entities within our long-term care sector. That's not what we explored here. We explored objectively and scientifically what are the, you know, was it all long-term care homes and what were the factors of those long-term care homes? And so as we, you know, engage in these conversations uh, in, in the public and, and governments, um, you know, contemplate these results, it's important to note that it's the for-profit homes with those older design standards. And that's something we can target as we, um, you know, head into, um, you know, anticipated successive waves of this pandemic. And also recognizing that COVID-19 is not the only risk to uh, older adults' lives, that there are other infectious you know, outbreaks that occur every year within long-term care homes, most notably influenza. Um, and so something like targeting older design standards, the majority of homes that have these tend to be for-profit, but to paint the whole um, sector as saying, you know, all for-profit homes failed is somewhat disingenuous. And that's, I think, what's quite important about our analysis. And underneath all of this, I guess, is, is the bigger picture that this problem 
of long-term care is not going away. We have an aging population. The demand for beds is going to increase and or spaces is going to increase. And um, we have to work with what we've got. So in your opinion, you've alluded a little bit to this already. In other countries that have similar demographics to ours and, um, and where COVID-19 has been a bigger issue, like Italy, for example, why did long-term care not become the epicenter of the COVID-19 pandemic? Had we become uh, in Canada or had parts of our country become overrun like New York City or Belgium or Italy, I don't think we'd be talking about this um, because quite you know, frankly, there would have been deaths that, that the media and that society would have been more interested in focusing on than nursing home resident deaths. But the truth is, we actually did quite a good job in Canada of containing the deaths and the number of cases within our community during the, the first part of this pandemic. Um, and, and as we've spoken about, at the expense of our long-term care sector. So there are countries like the United States would be a prime example, which have had far more deaths occurring in long-term care homes. In fact, they can't even calculate the number of deaths within their long-term care homes. And no one even knows at this point in time, as we record this on July 17th, 2020, what the exact number of deaths that have occurred. But the focus um, has all been on the community because there have been settings like New York City and there have been settings across the country um, and there continue to be, as the cases at this point in time are exponentially growing, there are hospitals that are becoming overrun. So that hasn't been as much of a focus. But I think we've really got to shine a light on a sector that has been so neglected, uh, which is our long-term care sector. In a CMAJ editorial by um, Jaina holroyd Leduc and um, Andreas Lepakis, they discussed how the public health response in long-term care homes in Canada was sort of almost an afterthought, like it wasn't joined up with the public health response um, in the broader community. And, and that kind of resonates with them, with what you're saying. I think public health might come back and say, well, we've tried our best, but resources were limited, but it definitely is something to think about in the future. I think so too. There was a, a very nice um, viewpoint in JAMA uh, authored by Scott Halpern, um, who's uh, at UPenn. And he talked about one of the, he talked about sort of the cognitive biases in public health policy during COVID-19. And one of the things he, uh, he, he talked about as thwarting effective policy during these crises is what uh, they referred to as uh, identifiable victim bias. And so humans tend to respond more aggressively to threats to identifiable lives, those that they can imagine being their own or belonging to people they, they care about. And so I think people do not identify uh, with long-term care home residents. They experience the um, double discrimination of having uh, age-related stigma and also dementia-related stigma. And what people were very fearful of when we planned for this pandemic were were scenes uh, like Bergamo, Italy, or New York City of overrunning our critical care system and our our hospitals and young people on ventilators. And you're absolutely right. that, you know, long-term care home residents were an afterthought. And, and that's reflected in the results that we have to show here. And again, what I call our national shame. It's really important to understand that although in, in Canada, we have the, the dubious distinction of having the highest proportion of deaths occurring in long-term care that we are aware of amongst the OECD countries, um, our overall 
uh, mortality rate was uh, essentially the middle of the pack uh, compared to all other OECD countries where Belgium and Spain were um, understood to be very high and Australia and Norway uh, on the lower end. And we were, we were right in the middle, very close to uh, the United States as well as Portugal. In terms of our long-term care home population, mortality rate from COVID-19, not our overall mortality rate. We stand out as having our highest proportion of deaths within the long-term care sector of overall deaths, but other countries have had much, much higher death rates, and therefore their long-term care facilities' proportions look smaller. Yes. Interesting what you were saying about um, undercounting of how the long-term care sector is affected in other countries. I believe that's the case in the UK as well, this this sort of obfuscating of data around um, long-term care deaths. And it was almost like we we all tried to empty our hospitals to create capacity for um, COVID-19 potential cases. I believe that in the UK, hospitals got emptied out into long-term care facilities, possibly creating a situation where there was an increased risk of of COVID-19 in those facilities. So it's almost like we're owning our shame a little bit more than other countries are. We may be owning it, but now we have to act on it. Exactly. Moving on to sum things up, as two experts in the field, what do you think needs to happen in the short term and then in the longer term with how we can care for older adults in long-term care facilities in Canada? For the short term, uh, I think we need to continue on the path of upgrading facilities, these older facilities that are problematic, such that in, in subsequent waves that, we, that might occur, we can um, lower the, the, the risk of the kinds of infection spread that we saw uh, originally. Essentially, that means capital funding to improve these facilities immediately and to deal with some of the issues that have been brought to bear, for instance, the lack of air conditioning in some facilities, which is a complete embarrassment, I think. I think it's untenable in Canada that we would have that be the case. The second issue is to immediately increase the subsidy levels such that uh, adequate staffing can be provided regardless of facility type for profit, municipal or not for profit. These are immediate short term changes. In the long term, um, this debate of for profit and not for profit versus municipal is a symptom of a larger problem, which is that we have not in Canada conceptualized seniors care, including home care and long term care within the Canada Health Act. And we have various models and intractable issues that have developed as a result. We really need to think about how those sectors fit within the Canada Health Act, having national standards for those sectors, as well as how that works with a a realistic and real uh, national dementia strategy is really important. Yeah, I would absolutely echo what Andrew's saying. I think in the in the short term, you know, um, because of the fact that you know much of the uh, discourse around long-term care is now shifting to looking for accountability and um, trying to fix the system, which is a good thing. We also have to recognize, and, and not to fear monger, but I think this is something, you know, the prudent healthcare systems in Canada are planning furiously for a second wave, um, which could happen as soon as, you know, in, in a matter of weeks. And there are many things that need to be addressed immediately um, that are not going to be addressed by the longer term changes of building new beds and upgrading um, existing ones. Those need to be done. And it shouldn't be uh, one at the expense of the other. They need to be done together. So specifically right now, in addition to 
bolstering staffing and securing uh, fair wages with benefits for staff members, which I, I think is, uh, as Andrew says, is an utmost priority. And that's supported by also the recent Royal Society uh, report that came out uh, just, uh, just earlier this month. Um, there are still ongoing issues in homes when it relates to um, having enough infection prevention and control support and expertise. There are homes that continue to report having personal protective equipment shortages. These homes are in need of not just increased staffing to care for the residents, but increased staffing that um, comes with all the extra protocols and procedures that are necessary to prevent COVID-19 from entering in our homes. We've experienced also not only an, an epidemic of COVID-19 that has ravaged through our homes, but the residents within these homes have also experienced substantial collateral damages because of the restrictions that we've needed to input into these homes to prevent COVID-19. So many of these residents, we haven't found a way to reintegrate their family caregivers or to reintegrate family to provide them with social interaction. So there's huge rates uh, anecdotally, but um, certainly things that I've seen clinically and have been echoed from colleagues around the world of loneliness and social isolation. Residents have, uh, like all other uh, members of society, but perhaps the, the effects have been most exacerbated in this population, have not had uh, medical care to the same uh, intensity or frequency they would have beforehand. So there's been physical declines, functional declines, cognitive declines. There are huge issues that are ongoing right now that needs to be sorted out in terms of how are we going to prevent ongoing collateral damages from, from occurring and how do we uh, mitigate that from happening if we need to clamp down on homes again, if COVID-19 should roar uh, again in our community and then ultimately um, end up in our long-term care homes. One of the things that's important um, and I think is, you know, comes out of findings like ours is that homes across the province of Ontario have actually made a public health uh, order um, from the chief medical officer of health's office to no longer have uh, new admissions to four-person rooms. Um, and you know I, that reflects the fact that we saw uh, that when you actually have crowding in a in a in a long-term care home, um, like we saw in our analysis, the older design standards that have these multi-occupancy rooms led to the larger and deadlier outbreaks. So that is a good public health intervention that has come out of you know findings such as ours. Um, the obvious counter to that is that now we've created across our province, we estimate about a 10,000 bed deficit in long-term care. So one of the things we also immediately need to do is invest in home and community care for the thousands of people in our province who already had limited access to home and community care, but now are in crisis and will be waiting longer for long-term care uh, because of the changes that we've made, uh, which are important and you know, forward-thinking public health changes, but are clearly a result of a failure to upgrade those those older homes with the older design standards. So I think that's also very important to note. And and you know that that a public you know public health policy has actually come out of findings such as ours, which is which is very important. Um, so there are you know there are many issues that immediately need to be dealt with um, that should also be a focus in addition to the broader issues of of for-profit status, of upgrading homes, 
of building a long-term care sector where, you know, we, that feels like a home and that we would want our loved ones to enter. We need to make sure that many of the things that happen uh, in response to the crisis in long-term care homes, like acute care sector partnerships, where we shared human resources and expertise and personal protective equipments, that some of these relationships are fostered so that we no longer leave homes like we did to fend for themselves, resulting in dramatic uh, measures like needing to call in the army and catastrophic death rates. That should never happen again. Um, And so, you know, we need to remain extremely vigilant across our country and we need to keep this sector at the forefront of public discourse and of planning for successive ways of this pandemic. Thanks, Nathan. Well, it's been fantastic to have this in-depth discussion with two such passionate experts in this field. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having us. I've been speaking with Dr. Nathan Stoll and Dr. Andrew Costa. To read the article they co-authored, visit cmaj.ca. Also, don't forget to subscribe to CMAJ Podcasts on SoundCloud or a podcast app, and let us know how we're doing by leaving a rating. I'm Dr. Kirsten Patrick, Executive Editor for CMAJ. Thank you for listening. <laughs>